Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. My name is Reverend Madi Caballero, and I am so glad to see each and every one of your faces here. Uh, we are in a loving community that is open and affirming to all who come in goodwill. Please join me in the words by which we light our chalice. They can be found in our order of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. For our opening words, words of welcome, I'm going to read Let Us Sing the Magic of Imagination by Susan L. Von Dresser. Let us sing the magic of imagination by which we know one another and learn the lives of eras gone by. Let us sing the magic of creation by which we build the world of our soul and teach its wisdom to others, young and old. Let us sing the magic of our lives together, holding and shaping by the movement of breath from heart to lung all new life that is to come. Go now with singing. Go now with magic in your fingertips. Touch this world with life. Each week, we gather amidst our theological and otherwise diversity, and we remind ourselves each week what we're here to do and who we are by saying together our mission statement that we wrote conveniently on the wall so we don't forget it. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Today's reading is called Backscratcher by David Bumbaugh. The fall from grace, the great disruption of primordial order, the original sin, had nothing to do with eating apples or talking with snakes. The instrument of our fall was a wooden backscratcher. That piece of wood bent at the end so one piece can reach the unreachable spot there, between the shoulder blades, down just a little bit lower, now up a little bit, there where the most persistent itch always takes up residence. Before the back scratcher, before that simple infernal device, we, like our primate kin, depended on others to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. You scratch my back. I'll scratch yours. Before the back scratcher, that simple infernal tool, we needed each other to scratch that unreachable itch. The wooden back scratcher dissolved the bonds of reciprocity, unloosed the ties of community, and tempted us to believe in our own godlike self sufficiency. And, and God walked in the cool of the garden and saw a primate standing alone. What have you done, God asked, that you stand alone? I have found a backscratcher, said the beast, and now I need no one. Poor beast, said God, now you must leave this garden. In Eden, no one stands alone. Each depends on the others. And thus began our wandering, our pacing up and down the earth, scratching our own itches, pretending at self-sufficiency, trying to ignore the persistent sense of loss 
the vague yearning for a primordial order, a world where you scratched my back and I scratched yours. A wooden back scratcher is a poor compensation for the gentle touch of a living hand. And now I'd like to invite you into a period of prayer and meditation. I don't often choose someone else's words to pray with, but uh, I do when they seem to fit the day. And these words by Victoria Weinstein fit today. Divinity is our birthright. God nods to God from behind each of us. But let us remember, as Mr. Emerson said, divinity is behind our failures and our follies also. In the silence that follows, let us pray that we may notice and accept the divinity of tiny things, the divine of ordinary miracles, and even in the awkward mistakes, in frivolous conversation with friends, in wordless companionship with a loved one, in the work that seems futile one day but resonates with meaning the next, in the shared meal and the shopping list, in the peaceful sleep, in the simple procession of the summer days. We pray this moment to keep tender vigil over our precious, imperfect lives, to know each other as a vessel, however cracked or broken, of the holy so we may strive to recognize the indwelling presence of God in all people, in all living things, and even in ourselves. In this silence, we open our hearts. So may it be. A pregnant woman leading a group of five people out of a cave on a coast is stuck in the mouth of the cave. In a short time, high tide will be upon them, and unless she is unstuck fast, they will all drown except for the woman whose head is out of the cave. Fortunately or unfortunately, someone in the party has a stick of dynamite with them. There seems no way to get the pregnant woman out or unstuck without using that stick of dynamite, which will inevitably kill her. But if they don't use it, Everyone else will drown. What should they do? In real life, our ethical dilemmas are usually nowhere near the drama of this hypothetical situation. Without realizing it, though, we make hundreds of ethical decisions in an average day. Should I let my neighbor know that their teen snuck out late last night? Should I consider placing my aging parent in a nursing home? Should I submit a project at work that I know to be subpar? Should I laugh at a racist joke to fit in? Should I spend the extra money I have to buy organic free-range groceries or give that money to charity? Should I give my spare change to that panhandler? Jesuit ethicists, ethicist, I have been tongue-tied all day. I'm pretty sure there is some spell involved. So Jesuit ethicist Thomas Shanks tells us that most people would indeed like to live an ethical life and to make good decisions, but there are several problems. One we might call everyday ethical stumbling blocks. Consider these. 
My small effort won't really make a difference. People will think badly of me. It's hard to know the right thing to do. My pride gets in the way. It may hurt my career. It just went by too quickly. I couldn't do anything to help. There's always a cost to doing the right thing. Jenks goes on. Now, how would you respond if these were your own children making these excuses for their bad behavior? Oh, Mom, what I do won't really make a difference. Dad, I just didn't know what to do. Grandma, my friends won't like me. I won't get invited to anyone's party. I'll just never, ever get a date again. Oh, the drama. So it's been a while since I took that undergraduate ethics class. A long while. But with a small amount of refreshing, I became reacquainted with every manner of philosophical theory ever written by a long dead, some long dead guy on the subject. Immanuel Kant wrote about our free will, which separates people from things, as he said. Moral behavior is what does not inhibit or harm the free will of another individual. I'm not sure how Kant would respond to the pregnant woman stuck in the cave scenario. To blow her up would surely inhibit inhibit her free will. And we can safely assume that not to do so would inhibit the free will of the tour group, as they are surely to drown. John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham's utilitarianism instructs us to choose the action which will provide the greater amount of good to the most people and will produce the least amount of harm. Mill and Bentham would have us do away with the pregnant woman post-haste and allow the majority to survive. We see holes in this approach. Over 2,000 years ago, Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero all wrote of the common good approach to ethical decision-making. Though less individualistic than the previous two, the common good approach to ethical decision-making calls us to reflect on our place within a society and asks, asks us to consider how our actions or governmental policies affect everyone. This has proven to be a task easier said than done in a capitalist society. When the bottom dollar is the final word, usually the haves will remain having, and the have-nots continue to not have. While these Grecian greats make it sound good on paper, or whatever they recorded on at the time, I'm not sure that imperial antiquity was altogether that utopian either. However, Aristotle also wrote about another criteria by which we might base our morality, the justice approach. If we ask, how fair is this action, we must analyze then uh, the level of discrimination or bias toward an individual or group over any other before we act. This is an approach that's popular at least in theory, with Unitarian Universalists, as we pride ourselves in our social justice activism and 
believing in leveling the playing field. I often say that we come to church, that church is a place where we are intentional about the practice. It's kind of like a laboratory, a living laboratory, where we can practice being our best selves. We can make mistakes, as Carol and Greminger reminded us. We can make mistakes and have do-overs. We can come back into right relationship with one another. But it, this is our laboratory in which we can practice being kind and doing good with others who care to improve upon themselves in the same way. So, but the problem that I've observed with the justice approach with, within Unitarian Universalists, we, um, myself included, we tend to not be the humblest of creatures when it comes to our ideals. And there's a lot of back padding that goes on. So what happens is that there's a great deal of denial with regard to who among us is treated unequally. So when Aristotle, he was on to something when he said, equals should be treated equally and unequals unequally. Well, okay, using the term unequals, it makes us cringe. But there are people who are treated unequally. And it, we have a hard time discerning who they are within our congregations. Um, so we've got some work to do there. But there's, um, there's, there's other approaches to ethical decision-making as well. Although Unitarian Universalists don't share a creed or a hard doctrine of any sort, we do have a set of guiding principles that uh, each member congregation of, and we are one, of the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations agrees to affirm and promote. So, our seven principles. When misunderstood as a creed by another name, which they've often been accused of being, UUs will often argue the exact language of those seven principles until we're blue in the face. It's happened. It continues to happen. It happened as they were first drafted. Um, the vague poetic language of the principles is not for everyone. But what each of the principles points to is a deeply held virtue that we do tend to have in common as UUs. More than any other technique, UUs will often, over time, once you've been a UU and heard enough sermons on the principles or practiced them in this living laboratory that we have here, um, we, we begin to employ a virtues approach to ethical decision-making. Our seventh principle refers to the, quote, respect for the in, uh, interconnected web of existence of which we are a part. On Friday, this past Friday, I happily shed my skin as Reverend Mahdi and took on the role of Professor Hagrida, chair of the Care of Magical Creatures Department at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. I, I announced the, my, um, my position as chair of this department last, this past service, the, the first service. Poor, poor um, Professor McGonagall had no idea that I had promoted myself to chair of the department, but now she knows. So um, I had a great time dressing up in a silly costume and leading five classes of campers in a spiderweb weaving craft. 
I enjoyed telling the kids. And my character was, was kind of a strict, strict, mean teacher. It was fun. The kids didn't buy it for a second. At Hogwarts, we believe in discipline. It was great. It was, I had a good time. Um, <laughs> and Divya, she recognized me. I said, she comes up to me and I said, do you seem to recognize me? Do I look familiar to you? I said, and she said, yes, I see you here every Sunday. And I said, I've never been here before. I'm a new professor. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. But I enjoyed telling the kids that spiders are magical creatures, not only because they protect us from biting insects and they produce a silk, a material that um, has a strength to density ratio that exceeds that of steel. It's, a strong, it's strong stuff and it's amazing and it flies out of their bottoms. They're magical, okay? Um, it's, Spiders are magical not only for that, but because they spin webs to not only serve themselves, but to leave as reminders for witches and wizards, the only ones in the world who know how to interpret such signs. Messages, reminders that we are all connected. We are all part of an interconnected web of existence that we cannot see. We can only feel and acknowledge by our actions. That's how spiders are magical. As I often do, I began to wonder about how and why we came to understand our interconnectedness through this metaphor of a web. Where did this come from? Words and phrases, they intrigued me. So I, I got to look in, and I found a sermon once preached by the UU minister, Reverend Ann Schrantz. And I just love that we have freedom of the pulpit because we can disagree so, so heartily. She said, I am not the first to note that spider webs exist as a way to trap tasty morsels of food. A web is a weapon. Also, the typical web exists on a plane. It is flat. There's no hierarchy of wholeness, not even a healthy hierarchy, in contrast to a dominator hierarchy. The philosopher Ken Wilber might call something like this flatland. I do not see myself as a part of a web of existence, she says. The web metaphor is not sophisticated enough to point to the nature, the true nature of existence. I don't suffer from this same affliction, though I respect her opinion. As much as you use everywhere, love a good semantics free-for-all, I'm not sure that we split hairs so much here in Texas over poetic license. This is a place where we've all grown up or we move here and quickly learn what someone means when they say something like, that dog don't hunt. They're not talking about their pet. And we understand what it means when someone says, oh, you're driving to X, Y, and Z city yeah, that's not a far drive at all. That means we should bring plenty of road snacks and probably start out first thing in the morning. Nonetheless, curiosity led me to discover that a spiderweb metaphor for our interconnectedness and implied ethical responsibility to each other and our world has no known origin. According to Fritjof Capra's book, The Web of Life, 
a new scientific understanding of living systems, the web of life is, of course, an ancient idea, which has been used by poets, philosophers, and mystics throughout the ages to convey their sense of interwovenness and interdependence of all phenomena. One of the most beautiful expressions is found in the celebrated speech that's been attributed to Chief Seattle. This we know. All things are connected like the blood which unites one family. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons and daughters of the earth. A person did not weave the web of life. They are merely a strand in it. Whatever they do to the web, they do to themselves. So in this way, spiders really are some magical creatures who do leave reminders of our interconnectedness to those who know how to interpret their meaning. I thought I made that up, but it's real. Not to beat this metaphor to death, maybe it's too late for that, um, but because, you know, there's surely flaws within it. Uh, Poetry, after all, is not meant to be precise, but to point us to a truth that we are then to discover for ourselves. But if we're to understand ourselves as mere strands within this web of life, then each point of connection is as important as any other. And each strand is crucial to the overall strength of said web. Why then do we feel less of a moral obligation to those around the world who are suffering compared to those across the street from us. Moral psychologist Joshua Green argues that the notion that morality is mostly common sense and following our gut instincts, it doesn't work so well when we're considering a global ethics. Green says that we're biologically and culturally wired to understand right from wrong with regard to our local group, our tribe. We have a tribal ethics rather than a global ethics by nature, is what he argues. He says evolution didn't equip us for modern ethical judgments. Our intuition is skewed to care more for those in close proximity and who we perceive as a closer similarity to us. The farther away we perceive an ethical dilemma to be, the more unrealistic we believe our ability uh, to affect changes or the more other we imagine a people to be, the less likely we are to devote our energy to acting. Our moral compasses seem to have a harder time navigating in an increasingly smaller world. Our, bre- our brains excuse me, uh, seem more comfortable thinking about um, things in the us versus them binary despite the better intentions of our bleeding hearts. Enter the world of Harry Potter. The character of Harry Potter created by um, J.K. Rowling and his trials at his school, Hogwarts, um, reads like a modern-day morality play. Though not without his flaws, Harry continually proves that given the option, 
he will choose to do what's right over what is easy. Sometimes this doesn't make him very happy, but he does it anyway, every time. This character's example has inspired serious books on the subject, college courses, and even legitimate academic analysis. In her essay, um, you know, I, I, before I go on, I did a search and found over a dozen college courses listed at respectable institutions that had Harry Potter critique of the literature of Harry Potter as a legitimate course that they were offering. One even took it so seriously that you could not register for the course. It had limited seating unless you could take a test to prove that you had indeed read all of the books in their entirety. Some of them are graduate level. It's insane. I'm, I went to college in the wrong era. Um, so in her essay, Moral Fiber and Outstanding Courage, Harry Potter's Ethic of Courage as a Paradigm for the Muggle World, and muggle means those who are non-magic people, Eliana Ionaya writes, Harry's authentic courage comes from his valuing of other people's lives even beyond his own. He feels strongly about his friends. He truly appreciates freedom and seems to possess an inner compass pointing to justice. Paradoxically, she points out that Harry Potter's tragic flaw lies in the character's difficulty in asking for help or vocalizing his own needs. So he feels, in other words, he feels responsible to the web of life, deeply personally responsible to the web of life, but doesn't always feel worthy of being cared for by it in return. I'm sure this is relatable for many of us. With such a fine example as Harry Potter books toward virtues, uh, virtues-based ethical decision-making, rather, it's no wonder that our Hogwarts camp, our Camp UU, has been such a success in teaching young campers what it means to be UU. And many of, the, of our campers come from outside of our congregation, so it's really wonderful to give kids a, a glimpse of what it means to be UU and what we're about. In fact, a study, another legitimate study, it's, it's insane to me, but it's, it's good stuff, it's good literature. So, uh, a study published in the Journal of Applied Social Psychology found that in J.K. Rowling's books, um, that they have, they've been helping, those who read the books or are familiar with them, that the books have been helping to fight prejudice by uh, altering young people's perception towards stigmatized groups. And they're getting this from the themes within the books and the movies. And um, the, the test, the study was done in particular with attention to the perceptions of stigmatized groups such as immigrants and LGBTQ folks. So, and they were conducted in France and um, the UK, or excuse me, Italy and the UK. Um, ethical decision-making is not something we finish learning about in adolescence. As we have found time and time again, as we make mistakes in our adult lives or do something and, and have a tinge of, of, of 
shame about it later. You know, we would never have cause to apologize to anyone ever again if we just had these lessons down pat. But no, it's something that we must all practice and explore until our last days. So perhaps our downfall has been, in fact, the advent of the back scratcher. Okay. We've become too independent. We've forgotten that we need each other, that we need to be taken care of as much as we need to take care of others, of our planet. Thank goodness, though, for spider webs and their reminder to the contrary. Thank goodness for all magical creatures and the lessons that they teach us, including each and every one of us. May the magical creature in you thrive in this wonderful web of existence. May it be so. And now I'd like to invite you to um, join me in the words by which we extinguish our chalice. Those are found in your orders of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Go in peace to make this world a more magical place. May it be so. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.